Welcome to Trying to Be Kind, a podcast that looks at academic texts regarding tabletop games under our own unique set of lenses. And for season two, we are looking at the book, The Elusive Shift, as written by Mr. Peterson. I can't remember his first name all of a sudden, and I had an John. outline. It's John, John it's... Peterson. I was just trying to say it's not Jordan, right? It's John. It's, we are not reading Jordan Peterson because <laughs> yeah. we, we don't need clicks that badly. No, no, we are not reading Jordan Peterson. We're reading John Peterson. The book being The Elusive Shift uh, from the Game History series of MIT Press. So in our last episode, we did our session zero, so to speak, of like why we're excited to read this book. And yeah, we're actually trying to be more structured today. Could you imagine us structured? We're going to try it. We're going to see how it goes. We're going to follow rules. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Rules as suggested or rules as written? You wrote the rules, so like you could just rewrite it right now. Like I'm pretty sure that like the rules for this are a Google Doc. Like I could write that we have to like all switch names every third episode, and oh like that gosh. would be a rule, and could then you... one of you would delete it. Can you imagine <laughs> what's going to happen right now? Is that yeah, this is the first episode where we're using a Google Doc to actually collect our thoughts. So I wonder if there's going to be an actual change in the discussion. Can, can you believe, all of our beautiful listeners out there, can you believe that we just winged it the whole way through? Isn't that incredible? Like how professional we are? I'm we impressed with us. masters of extemporaneous speaking. <laughs> I would argue that we are the game's NPR in terms of professional polish. <laughs> okay, so anyway, like we discussed you can find our website at double hue, double hue double hue dot i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) and scene now let the normal chaos reign (laughs) no as we as you said in our last episode we're going to be looking at this book a bit differently than we did at the uh forge book because with the forge we were looking at from a chapter to chapter point of view and now we're looking at, at a more thematic point of view and this week's theme is about communities which actually filled me with some dread. Uh, because look, um, The Elusive Shift is a book on gaming history, really. And when you get down to it, uh, games need players to exist. Uh, a game, if it wants to have any kind of well, longevity, clearly needs to be played. And when a game gets enough players and then followings amongst those players, we then get communities. Uh, this episode looks at how communities rose up along with the rise of D&D and possibly how that past situation now reflects in today's, you know, communities and discourse. Because honestly, there are quite a lot of like questions here and uh, the rationale behind this episode is that um, we've been looking at the argument that of how D&D and its rules and arguably the interpretations of those rules that one can argue are functional design choices, given that these the system and these rules were formed by the meeting of wargaming and science fiction communities, are we now in a similar moment of foment? And more importantly for me at least, how are other communities based on ethnicity, gender, or region, how have they now altered games and designs with their entry or acknowledgement into the TTRPG space? So those are our guide questions. 
Look at me giving teacher prompts. Those are our yeah, guide questions I, for our discussion today, basically. And I need to slide in and make sure that we obey a rule because we almost <laughs> broke one of we haven't introduced ourselves. So how about the question for this week, extemporaneously, despite us having preparation, <laughs> B, what gaming community other than the world's most popular game would you say that you belong to? Long or short answer, but, you know, and who are you? Because sometimes there's first-time listeners on the second episode of the second season. You're so considerate, Fiona. I mean... Oof, that's a hard question, Fiona. Well, uh, maybe I could start? Yeah. Okay, so I'm Mahar, and I come from the RPGC, or as some people insist, the RPGSEA, and I prefer saying the whole thing out loud, like RPGC. So Southeast Asia. And yeah, so that's basically where I'm mostly from and people would connect me to. Uh, reason why being I am a Filipino, both by heritage, nationality, and citizenship. So there's no other colored passport, friends. I <laughs> That's it. I'm a Filipino. Uh, and this is a response to those people who have occasionally given like a little bit of a a raised eyebrow at a pale-skilled Filipino. And yes, Filipinos do speak English. And this is this goes to, especially to every single American who ever asked me where I learned how to speak English, given that number one, we are a former colony and you described us as that as a colony. So you may not call yourselves not colonizers. You were imperial. It's in your documents. And number two, Sorry, some <laughs> anger there. And number yeah. two, because we are the third largest English-speaking nation in the world, thanks to you. So, yeah. Yeah. That's where wow, I wow. speak English. Sesame Street. Thank I've never you, heard America. that before. Oh, yeah. America keeps on denying that they were ever colonizers when uh, even the New York Times referred to the Philippines constantly as the colonies. Yeah. So, uh, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> How dare... Oh, and well, before that, we were Spanish for 300 years. So if we seem like Hispanic, Hispanized, yeah, that's yeah. also where it comes from. Well, I'm Jared. And if I had, man, Fiona, you're really, okay. So the, the long version. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I've managed to make us answering who we are the most difficult part of the show. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Oh my god! And it's great. This episode, identity, <laughs> not community. <laughs> so I'll answer it this way first. I think if a person who were not me, like if you asked some random person who knew me what camp I was in, I'd probably get labeled OSR or something that ends in OSR. And I think, like ideologically, as far as games go, that's probably the most appropriate thing. But I generally try to distance myself from that particular group or at least, at least that particular label um, for more like, we'll say interpersonal reasons. Um, I, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of gross people who also use that particular nomenclature and I don't see, I don't see any reason to really keep it around. So I don't, I don't really call myself much, but if you really pushed on me, I'd probably say something to Jason OSR. Okay, okay. Instigator, it's your turn. I'm Fiona Maeve Geist, and I identify as an instigator. Um, 
I would say that I'm a member of the theoretical chess games community, and I also sometimes play role-playing games. Um, <laughs> I, I actually explicitly stopped listing affiliation with any, you know, role-playing thing other than describing myself as a public woman who likes wargaming and occultism. And, you know, I think that that is the best answer. That I've got right now. Love it. I I like indie games. Okay. <laughs> I think that's and end of episode. No, just kidding. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> now that we have alienated our audience or baited them to write a letter to the editor. <laughs> Who is us? <laughs> I would like to complain to the people who produce trying to be kind. It's us, friends. It's us. <laughs> it's the same people. It's the same people. Okay, so here we go. Let's start this discussion, right? Because if we look at the earlier section of uh, The Elusive Shift, so it is a history book. It, le- it looks at the development of the game. And we also mentioned this last episode. When you think about it, this book is quite interesting because it charts the growth of D&D in everyone's favorite game, no sarcasm, uh, into, you know, from what it was as a hobbyist's uh, product. And when you get down to it, I, if you, I think if you actually think of it in modern terms, in contemporary terms, from the rise of D&D as an indie game into the behemoth that it is now. So, yeah, and it's, it's really quite interesting on how um, basically as the game grew, you had communities grow around the game. And um, for me, much of the game, of course, is American. So Fiona and Jared, would you have ever like encountered D&D communities in the States? And what were they like in your experience? Well, um, I, my first role-playing game was actually Pathfinder. I I sort of came, like I, I encountered RPGs at a weird moment for corporate D&D uh, because it was like right right when 4e hate was at its very height everyone hated fourth edition and everyone was playing Pathfinder instead so that was actually my my like entree into the the whole business was Pathfinder when I was in college um, later because I didn't I, I quit playing Pathfinder because I didn't it didn't really do it for me um, I liked hanging out with my friends you know and then many years later, I came back and I think I, I think I played, I came back for Edge of the Empire, the fantasy flight game, Star Wars game. Um, and then I like started playing a bunch of story games. I played some PBTA games. I played like, you know, Fiasco and stuff. And then it ended up playing DCC and being very OSR for a while. Um, but yeah, my earliest experiences were kind of idiosyncratic in that way that it was, I mean, it was D&D, let's be real, Pathfinder is functionally it's three five you know just pathfinderized a bit uh but it was like still sort of outside somewhat of the corporate structure um in a in a weird way how about you fiona i mean i think you've been playing D the longest between us three yeah Arguably. i mean like you know I would say, like, as a kid, right, like, I played with my friends insofar as, like, you know, I I have a long story and it's, like, incredibly boring, but, right, like, the overall thing is, like, you know, I didn't own a lot of stuff and I was a small child and I, like, 
played a game to the extent that like children obey the rules of a game like you know it's very serious and we're taking notes but like also no one knows how to name a character and like most of like the connective tissue in the game is just made up ad hoc because like children are bad at memorizing things you know and i always maintained an interest i played on and off like at varying degrees of people actually knowing rules or caring about them um i played a bunch in college by like you know kind of just knowing people that played weird board games or party games you know um and then sort of like you know have on and off been interested in like more experimental things right like i wasn't really playing by the time pathfinder came out um i you know moved and was doing grad school and you know like bought a copy of pathfinder and was going to run it and then just kind of like read old books a couple times because there was a second hand store and then was like fuck you know fussing around with stuff and like it it's kind of always been until i sort of started being a person on games internet like you know a thing where i mostly don't participate in any like large community or it's more like you know a community of people who think that like trying to break the rules of the game is fun right like trying to run tpk dungeons in like Pathfinder on level 20s is a really different game than people that care about defeating a few goblins. Mm. Even if, like, you know, I was interested in things like how can you leverage the game to attack characters in ways that it doesn't even matter what their level is, right? Like, suffocation is really effective. That's really yeah. morbid sounding. God. Um <laughs> You know, when you go and drink with your friends and you try to kill 20th level Pathfinder characters using sometimes converted over stat OD&D stuff. Oh and you sometimes read, like, you know, story games because you're interested in ideas. Oh my goodness. So, <laughs> so you know, like I, in, like, I lived in a city where two fairly prominent people in the OSR are and never met either of them. Um, you know, I didn't participate in the internet. We went to the same game store. Um, but, you know, also by relative age, I would be a, like, 24-year-old proto-trans woman. And, you know, both of those people would be about 15 years older than me. And I just, you know, think for many reasons they might not, you know, immediately ask me to play games with them. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So, you know, like, I, I'm just sort of someone who, like, wandered through things. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> the reason behind all of this, like, long introspection is because it's good to place ourselves where we are vis-a-vis -vis community and gaming. Um, looking at this text, right? So, according to Peterson, Dungeons & Dragons famously resulted from the intersection of two cultures, a gaming culture of conflict simulation and a literary culture engaged in speculative and fantastic fiction. Or as Gary Gygax put it in 1976, it arose from a combination of warfare with miniature figures and the desire to create heroic epics of the strange and supernatural. 
And thus, to understand the first audience for D&D, it's therefore necessary to understand the two pre-existing cultures of wargaming and science fiction fandom, where the latter is understood to encompass fans of fantasy fiction. So it's not just science fiction here, it's also fantasy. And science fiction fandom got organized decades before the first games fans banded together and the wargaming community would copy the pioneering structures that enabled science fiction fans to forge their own identity. National and regional clubs, which hosted both local and large-scale conventions and published amateur magazines or fanzines for disseminating ideas throughout their membership. So much so, the book later contends, that this actually became a... Uh, this actually became something of a um, business idea that Gygax, Arnus, and et al. were thinking that we need these two communities to merge because this will then determine if people will actually buy our games. So much so, again, that the book later quotes Gygax. I wonder if among fantasy and SF fans not introduced our hobby, there is a corresponding possibility of interest in wargaming. As, an, as a guess, I'd say, well, it's not as high as 90%. There must be an un, quite an untapped source of new players among sci-fi, sci-fi fans. And the fate of Gygax's publishing company, Tactical Studies Rules, TSR, greatly depended on the accuracy of that guess. So when you get down to it, I mean, it looks and sounds a bit mercenary that, yeah, communities were engaged so that she could sell to them. But quite interestingly these communities also decided on how we're going to play the game, what does the game mean, and now whether or not the creator of the game actually matters and how you interpret the rules of the game. And I found that really, really fascinating. Yeah, that's actually um, that's something I, I have a good bit about in my notes here, sort of how, how the, the text, you know, the, the original, the, the ODMB text, uh, exists in relation to, but not only like communities, but like individual people. You know, there's a there's a quote on page 29 that I picked out that says uh, the legendary Los Angeles Science Fiction Society housed the rules at its clubhouse, and like that that idea that the rules were there at the clubhouse. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like everyone had their own copy. We had to kind of go there to experience the rules. And I I know just separate this whole thing that the the OD&D, you know, they didn't know how popular it was going to be. So there was a period right at the beginning where it was actually relatively difficult to get your hands on it. There were only so many copies, you know. They printed it again as quickly as they could. But. So there's like this period where the text was a little bit out of reach or a little bit set a, set apart from individuals. And then there's also this, uh, you know, on page 66 this time, uh, quote, because even the genre's founding game remained silent on this matter. This is from a, a passage about trying to figure out what the word role-playing even means. And so it says, because even OD&D was silent on the matter, no authority could summarily settle this dispute. Like they didn't have a text to point at. And I find that really fascinating, sort of existing under this text that is at once the only authority. It's the only thing approaching authority in existence, but it's also one somewhere else (laughs) <laughs> and doesn't even have a hard and fast answer. So you end up in this, you get the feeling from, at least I did from the from reading the book, that like these two sections, these two communities, the science fiction on one hand and the, the war gamers on the other, if they were going to become a community, they kind of had to work it out 
between themselves. You know what I mean? It was very, uh, like God isn't here, <laughs> you know? And that, it, that seems like the situation seems super relevant to me today because, and maybe this is, maybe this is me getting out ahead of it a little bit, but I'm going to make a claim here that we're sort of seeing, at least I am, factionalism on the rise, right? We're seeing a lot of like, I'm this, that person is that, never the twain shall meet happening. And at the same time, I, at least I'm seeing uh, an impulse to sort of create very clear and very present texts to serve as external authorities, right? Very much the opposite of what was happening in early D&D. And I find that a really interesting sort of mirror world version, I guess. And I, I was interested um, if either of you had thoughts about that sort of situation. Well, let's paint a picture here, right? What are these two communities? You have first the war gaming community, which is like, has its own traditions of rules and the referee tended to be the one with, you know, the one who gave the final the decisions on anything. The referee was the one who would basically like depend on the dice. Um, there was quite a lot of latitude for the referee that the umpire could also make up rules and apply them as he went along. And the players would have the freedom to attempt things that might or might not be allowed by the umpire. When you look at various like systems or rules that they had to do wargaming and then on the other hand you had this like sci-fi community which was actually quite um insistent on on peer evaluation and looking at how things are done does this make sense in the terms of narrative is the canon being followed or not is it anti-canon and so on and so forth so, and so much so that it, uh, Peterson argues, ultimately, D&D would not in belong entirely to either culture. Its reception depended on both, and the friction between them helped to shape the way the game was first played, understood, and modified. And I find this really interesting, because this kind of sounds like us. <laughs> this sounds so much like us right now yeah isn't this like a problem of four decades and more <laughs> you know it's like we always seem to go back to this as a as a as a group like you have story communities and you have non-story communities coming in you have like people who say rules as written it's the bible and i'm sorry to like say this jared considering everything that's happened but like you have this rotating, repeating, constantly unresolved system does matter conversation, <laughs> which I personally find so moronic. Like, it always comes back to that. You always have a group of people saying the rules matter versus the rules can be interpreted. And it just, it just, it, it just seems to be such a constant argument that sometimes it makes me wonder, do people even want this to be resolved? Like, why argue? you're not going to leave your camps, right? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of digging in the heels, which um, I think I think that's really what struck me about this early D&D situation is, at least from the description in this particular book, it feels like there was, you know, there was plenty of contention. Don't get me wrong. There's lots of examples of people in this book saying, 
incendiary things at each other and walking away. You know what I mean? But at the same time, like the overall arc of the early days of D&D presented in, in this book is very much one of like, yeah, they kind of had to work it out, you know, somewhat together or at least nearby to each other, right? These two camps that the book proposes. Um, and I'm, I'm, that gives me some amount of hope that perhaps, perhaps we have that available to us now to some degree, but it's tough, you know, it's tough. Fiona, any, any, like, on your end, what do you think about this? Like, how this, how, do you think, like, I don't know, how do you phrase the question? Like, have communities fundamentally changed the game, I guess? And not just D&D, but other games as well, as a result of how people have been talking and interacting about this? Yeah, I mean, I think, like, right, like, I think a lot, like, a sociologist, even though, like, I'm not one by training fully, but right like i think there's a bunch of good tools from that but like there's a bunch of gaming communities and you know to some degree some people might like each other for reasons other than playing the same game right like there's the degree to which it's like why i find like a design adherence concept of community particularly weird ultimately is the real question whether or not this person uses the rules that were written by one person or another or you know what are the sort of like behaviors of this person you know maybe as like a heuristic sometimes is better um but right like you you have like these sorts of generational shifts going on also throughout like the book as a whole right like i'm kind of jumping ahead a bit but right like kind of why a lot of the zines pop up is people start playing with new people who didn't come up through the same communities right like wargaming has a bunch of like things that you learn right like draw distances and spatial reasoning and a bunch of stuff about how turn order works in the same way that like you know people who play trading card games tend to have like a certain way of thinking about how card games are played and the concept of what like an appendix n for example is is such a weird thing to me where it's like these are the books that this person read that made them like create the setting or concept of how rules work in a game which doesn't necessarily mean as much sometimes as people draw from it right like it was always something that's moving through time. If the goal was to create a final document, like they wouldn't be a very good business. Like ultimately, <laughs> you know, the hope was that people would try this thing and like it and want to do it again. And also some people would need something that like fulfills doing some of the work for you. So it's not pure randomization from a core book, but it's also, you know, got some features that maybe also teach you how to do this thing it's it's really interesting that you bring those up like you know like how people just come out with zines and when you think about how like how do i put this like i think old dnd and even just kind of the book old dnd was notorious for being vague <laughs> it is almost like 
we're not sure we thought up all of the situations in which the rules can be applied. So here, here's some guidelines. <laughs> you and know it really I mean? requires that you have played quite a lot of war games probably before. Yeah, really like you must have it. a mindset of, I guess, arbitration maybe <laughs> in your in your doing things. And what's really yeah. funny here, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead, Fiona. Oh, like really old war game sprite are something I know a bunch about. I'll consider myself to be a member of the community of people who could reasonably play any variation of Kriegspiel. Um, <laughs> which, like, if anyone else wants to join that community, I will play you in all three versions of Kriegspiel. Like, please just, you know, form a gaming community of more than one. <laughs> a lot of those games were supposed to be teaching people how to command troops, right? Like, theoretically, you don't want to have officers just marching random human beings around a field and making them pretend to stab each other for a lot of hours. So you use, like, the most advanced mathematics of the time, a d6, to, like, determine how many, like, units fall down, basically. But, like, there's a bunch of sub-rules that basically exist because the observers are all ranking officers who maybe actually have seen an, a war being like, well, I have a proposition for this theorem, right? And then once people agree, resolve the action, and then you move on. And it's also so that you can command people to do a bunch of things with moving fake units around a board with special sticks. It's it's a weird thing that existed because, like, Prussian military schools were a thing. Um, but also, like, you know, Little Wars was intended to make people pacifists. And people that trained, like, military strategy from chess find, like, you know people that play chess aggressively to mathematically eliminate the opponent by sacrificing pieces in a fairly like simple trade hierarchy like they found that distressing because it showed a lack of respect for your pieces <laughs> i find that like incredibly funny in like you know really weird ways but right like wargaming has historically because whenever people draw on it that's like kind of the urtext there's obviously wargaming before that chess is a form of wargaming many like go to some degree also all forms of divination to some degree if you want to get technical but like it has a tradition of sort of like being like i believe this will happen and therefore like this is what should happen to resolve this because this has become a fringe case and having multiple people make cases and kind of like appeal to authority and the concept of an umpire or a referee is that they can basically say, everyone, we need to move on. Let's just say that it's this and just move on. <laughs> Let's just say it's that it's this and then move on. Yeah. Well, because the joke of why you play chess with a clock is that you're supposed to play chess politely, which means that you're not supposed to prompt the other person to move. They might be thinking. Yeah. And that apparently, like, you know, a game had over an hour logged because, you know, someone forgot to shake hands or something like that. So, you know, you have clocks to, like, give people some time management at their chess. Well, Fiona, uh, let's not say this to the rules lawyers in the in the Amar listening pool. 
<laughs> if a history lawyer would like to argue with me about exactly why clocks exist in chess, that's fine. <laughs> and they can write a letter or they can contact me on Twitter. Well, okay. The reason why is that clearly communities have different ideas. And then when they meet and they match, they do stuff to the game. So here's a passage where both of the two cultures, meaning wargaming and sci-fi, supported an open collaborative environment where fans shared ideas freely, usually without much concern for intellectual property. That's largely the sci-fi community, especially with their fanzines. The possibility that someone would pay money for the sort of half-baked ideas that filled these fanzines fanzines would have struck most as laughable. So again, from the elusive shift, page three, right? Of the Kindle edition. And I think that's still somewhat true. Like, if you look at things now, we do have big concerns about IP. Um, and, like, if you do something, well, it's, it's a whole mixed bag, right? Like, uh, the things that garnered interest were often the media that captured your imagination. So, unsurprisingly, um, the sci-fi community would actually try to get things into their games. Or people who played D&D from the sci-fi community, perhaps unsurprisingly, would attach like some fantasy tropes into the games. Because just keeping in mind that the definition of sci-fi, at least according to Gygax at that time, included fantasy. So he lumped sci-fi fantasy together. And it's still somewhat true that, you know, we do concern ourselves with IP. Um, Kickstarters with Avatar come to mind. And this has changed the creative landscape somewhat. I think people either are afraid of touching something that resembles an established property for fear of getting sued, or people try to get the licenses to established properties in order to sell something even more. And that actually reflects a Gygax-like um, you know, intention. He actually did say, I want people from the sci-fi community to do things in wargaming because they have a culture there that might actually like drive things forward and buy stuff right so so even now i think looking at our designs based on how our communities interact we do see designs that reflect fandoms and we do see designs that allow people to play in the genre and they're allowed to continue playing in those genres to play in the market like we have monster hearts which riffs off of horror genres for teens we have masks which does things for you know teen superheroes as well so i guess it's quite interesting to see for me that we still have that ongoing that ongoing discussion of oh how does a community that plays how does one particular subset or one particular kind of community meet in with gaming to produce new stuff and i think that's something that's still going on and perhaps D&D might have been the first official, I don't like using the word, but maybe the first one to like openly, rather openly court different genres and fandoms to play the game. And that's happening right, right now as we speak. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And you see like just a little bit of history, the, the earliest... The earliest, like, actually licensed IP RPG I know of is FASA Star Trek, which I think I'm, I'm looking it up right now. I think it was 1981, which is the same year, like, Moldvay Basic. Oh, it's 83, so just after Moldvay Basic came out, um, which is, like, really not long considering after 
OD&D came out in 77, 74, 74. So like, that's only 10 years. And I'm sure there was one before that. That's just the earliest one I know of. So like, it's been a part of the whole thing from the beginning, like you say. Yeah, that's really fascinating. We talk a lot about, like, you see a lot of people, especially for whatever reason, especially in the like PBTA area, because uh, that's that's sort of its own little subcontinent, I think, uh, inside of story games, maybe, where like there are a lot of designers that work exclusively in PBTA or very like mostly in PBTA, and they tend to like a lot of them are very interested in genre and genre emulation. And I hadn't really connected it until until just now that that's like very much that goes back to the roots of the game. Yeah, I, I think a lot of how like a lot of the sort of concept of heartbreakers, you know, tying back to our Edwardian period, um, Edwardsian period, <laughs> um, is it kind of was like a 3.5 book for every like property and or genre mm. like you know there was kind of like a licensing bonanza for three five content and then like people that also did like a fan version that was pretty close to that but maybe also to other properties yeah the old d20 glut i mean yeah. was it actually i just checked star wars was a d20 we followed d20 systems there, there was a 1990s Watsy Star Wars that was D20. There's an earlier one from... Oh, who did Star Wars, Fiona? The, the D6 Star Wars. Uh, Fantasy Gre- Flight Games? No, the, the really early one, the D6, the Greg Kostikian. Hold on. I'm so bad at, like, the older yeah, game. Yeah, Fantasy history. Flight. It's Fantasy, Fantasy Flight. Flight has the most recent one. That one I played a lot of, actually. There's a 1987 Star Wars from West End Games. That's the earliest, oh. I think, Star Wars. Yeah. Like, it's really interesting how, you know, we, we are here. And then that's just in terms of, like, genre bending. I can't believe I discovered, I said, Avatar and genre bending. I'm like, oh, Mahar, stop it. <laughs> but, like, that's just already in terms of, like, creative output. So already D&D went through the same, the same development. And we're going through it now. Now, this isn't a credit D&D with like, oh, look, they've made it easy for us to gamify our favorite IP. <laughs> um, I think people actually have been pretending to be their favorite IP for outside of D&D for a longer time now. It's just that in the creation of products, it became, it did become an actual consideration to be made. Here's the other thing, and I found this really funny because I'm, I guess my read of this particular section is, how again as i'm not a historian by any means but i do find it funny how we have repeating discussions over time and how people either forget we've had this discussion before so it's actually been resolved quote unquote or rather people repeat the discussion at, and then don't do anything to change the discussion <laughs> so as a result you have the same just you know the same thing ad nauseum and here, this might be interesting to some people because, and again, Jared, trigger warning, I'm sorry. No, you're fine. We might observe that the initial players of Dungeons & Dragons divided into two groups with due caveats about overlapping membership and interests that reflected the two cultures of wargaming and science fiction fandoms. There were games people and story people. 
<laughs> well, you know. Page 26, uh, the elusive shift. So I'm just like, this sounds so familiar. That's <laughs> like, oh my God. Games people, aka systems people versus story people. And right? And and the discussion that's done in the book, it argues that the way the groupings would work was that they were they would argue quite a bit on how games should be run. So you oh, had yeah. people saying you gave too much treasure. It's a Monty Hall campaign versus what? How can you be level 1000? How can you be killing everyone? And then you had the people saying, I just want my players to have fun. Oh, you're too lenient. And it's just like, oh my goodness, right? So what would happen was that these groupings would then push and try to fight over who owned the discourse over a game. Right? They would they would try to fight over the discourse of who owned a game. So, so that so that I guess one had a winning ideology of game and and it, and it pushed things like it went beyond the ownership of who would direct the discourse. It, it, it sometimes they even go so far as to say Gygax doesn't matter. You know, they were like basically, ah, screw Gygax, right? The people were basically going like, no matter what the main designer of this game says, we actually don't care, right? And thus, you have a whole new product coming out. And as it would spread, like in a root system of like, you know, here, as the game would then spring up, as it grew in popularity and spring up, you would then have different ownerships of the same game. So, you know, like the designer was dead. It was very like formalistic in literary sense, right? So, so This is one of my favorite things about uh, sort of the, my favorite through line in the notes I made, I guess, uh, because you've got, you, you, you referred to this. There's the, the bit on page 31 about how, you know, Greyhawk came out and it was very much, that's the first supplement for OD&D called Greyhawk. And it was very much an attempt to like codify and clarify the rules. And there's this great quote in the book um, that I don't, I don't have the exact, like who said it in front of me. Um, but it's someone wrote in a in an article in a zine, quote, D&D is too important to leave to Gary Gygax. It's just this immediate rejection of any attempt by the publisher to say what's true. Right. Even I think I think Greyhawk was 1975. So only one year uh, later and uh, already people were completely rejecting any dogmatic claim from the publisher about what these, what these games are. Um, and I think it's, it's important to, to sort of acknowledge also that that was, that wasn't like new, you know what I mean? Like it was, there's a bit on page 56 about Kriegspiel. And it's a very similar situation where you've got these two camps. You've got two camps. You've got free, free Kriegspiel and rigid Kriegspiel and there was a, apparently a, a lasting schism between them and never the twain shall meet. And then at some point toward the end of the 19th century, um, where it, where it became something in between, you know, you've got the, the free Kriegspiel guys are starting to do more 
like use more of the rules and tables and the rigid Kriegspiel guys are starting to loosen up a little bit. And so there's this passage on page 56 that sort of enumerates that. Um, but it's interesting that like this, we see this narrative crop up right over time, even well before D and D and even well after it, I think. Yeah. So I guess this begs the question, why do we even still discuss these kinds of things? Well, because clearly new things mean that we can take this old wine and we can put it in a new bottle. And now um, <laughs> that really works better in an era in which older wine isn't considered to be more valuable. You know, it's the problem with an idiom because like, you know, I'm aware it's biblical in nature and it's like old world wine. Yeah, like vintage like vintage old world wine is called vinegar and you maybe want to cook some things in it, but you certainly don't want it as like your refreshing beverage. Anyway. Um... <laughs> it's just, okay, no, it's just, how do I put this? I think the feeling some people behind have behind a text is actually quite scary. Mm. And I think we need to highlight how, because games and the way they're played are very community dependent when someone from outside, well, seemingly part of your community, because you play the same game, tells other people how they play their games, that's when I start wondering why there seems to be an assumption of monolith. Yeah, like, I think I think it it's it's one of those things that we could probably sit here and like point at root causes forever. Mm -hmm. But I think one important one to acknowledge perhaps and this is getting away from the book this is like a, me speculating about where our industry is right now uh, but i think one important thing to point out is like that's a sales pitch and i think this is something fiona was saying a moment ago also that's a sales pitch this is a why are you playing we see this all the time somebody makes their whatever harry potter splat book for dnd 5e and then in a million indie designers show up and say, you shouldn't do that. You should play this other game that's better for what you're trying to do. You're wrong. I'm right. Do my thing instead. And it's this very dogmatic sales pitch that's couched in, I don't know, some kind of larger theoretical claim about what is good in life, you know? It's, it's almost like people are depending on arguments of... <laughs> Here's how I put it. No one wants to admit that they're actually being logical. Mm. All their arguments are actually like pathos and ethos. Like, because I'm X person, you should listen to me. Because this is how games should be, which when you get down to it, is a feeling you get out of out of how you have fun <laughs> and satisfaction. But the arguments are couched in logical terms when it's actually quite like, no, this is all about how you feel about yourself and your own claim to authority, right? Yeah, so, it's selfish. And this is from someone who identifies as a sophist. <laughs> you know, it's just so annoying to me. I mean, like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm okay, I'm gonna get into trouble for this. Like, recently we had this discourse where a designer, a person who actually designed for D and D, uh, Daniel Kwan, said on Twitter at least that he doesn't, um, he doesn't actually count hit points um, when playing, particularly with children, like. The, the, the opponent dies when the character's action is awesome enough that, hey, that would be a good finishing move, so do it, right? Sounds awesome to me, personally. I agree with that. And, and then, oh my god, you would think he slaughtered a baby. He got so much Twitter hate 
which I find like rather like gross, like really, because number one, um, it's a game for frick out, you know, for frick's sake. And then the sec- it's like, he's not telling you how to play the game. He's literally like, oh, in my group, we do this, right? And the accusations that were being thrown at this person um, to the point that he was some, some somehow violating agency. And I was like, wait a minute, number oh, one. Yeah. Definitely mm-hmm. lying to the players, violating like, consent. What? Like, what are, what are you talking what? about? Like, like, are you for frick's sake kidding what? me? And then people said, like, you don't really play D&D. This person was hired on by Watsi itself to write modules for this freaking game. And then, and that after that ethos argument disappeared, oh, oh, now you're arrogant. I'm like, oh my god. Like, we need to stop, and this is not, okay, disclosure, Daniel's a friend, but that is how far and how ridiculous this discourse gets. And I think, because many in our communities are very, like, how do I put this? They're very, very proud of how evolved they've become. I just want to say, you are sounding exactly like the people from 40 years ago. You are as evolved as someone from five decades ago. That's all I'm saying. Think on that. Okay, more. I was gonna get in trouble. <laughs> it's just—it's so infuriating, right? No, it's real. It's, it's super real. It, it is because it's so dumb. I mean, let's just let's just accept authorial intent doesn't matter in individual groups. Can that just be agreed upon? Like, well, really? Do you need to define your community on that? Yeah. It's Black it's just over. it's one of those things. It would be really nice. It's much easier. I'm gonna go right back to like commodification. It is much much easier to like pitch to sell an experience that is like ontologically reliable. You know what I mean? If you do step by step everything in this book, you will have fun of this type, right? If if we could make that claim, which I think we cannot, but if we could make that claim. That would be an excellent sales pitch. And so I think that's sort of why it's so tenacious or one reason why it's so tenacious, because we are, for better or worse, in an industry that makes some amount of money. And some of us rely on... For better or for worse, we're dealing with an industry, right? Yeah, and this goes back to like what the the quote you pulled earlier about the, the early days of zines and how no one would ever pay for that. You know, now so like, we have Zine Quest, right? Now we have yeah, now it's now it's Kickstarter. Now it's literally nine million dollar Kickstarters. You know what I, I mean? mean? <laughs> like that's a big difference, right? I mean, like again, this is not to throw stones at anyone in particular. I find myself to be dealing with people in my own community where I'm just kind of like raising my eyebrows at them, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no such thing as a perfect community. It's made up with human beings, right? And human beings are by definition imperfect. But I think what's important for us to understand is that if you are repeating the same kind of conversation and again and again, and you're not making any worthwhile resolutions, you might want to just adopt the discussion entirely because this is not a life and death thing. I think, no, I think what the book doesn't say, and I think that's because Peterson is trying to be kind, kinder than I've been today, is, <laughs> is that these are pithy discussions mm. right the in the in the grand scheme of things 
this doesn't affect anything. If anything, what it should do is it should create for a diversity of product. Ideally. Which did happen afterwards. Yep. Right? Because if this system doesn't work for you, then here's another system. And I think there's a way to make that sales pitch without having to be adversarial about different people. 100%. Right? And, I mean, and I'll, I'll yeah. own up to, just as a sidebar, I'll own up to my sort of long time, my years long participation in what, what gets uh, colloquially called system matters discourse. And I've seen it. I've seen it from both sides. And it is, it's one of those things where I did my, my very best. I did my damnedest to make new claims and find new paths through this huge question, this huge question that's been with us since the very beginning, since before the very beginning. And, you know, we can, we can like, we can assess how well I did it that, but ultimately I don't, I don't think it, it really did much for many, like it did much for some people. Some people maybe got something out of it. I got something out of it, but I, you know, but it also caused a lot of strife. <laughs> and Jared, it's just like very I difficult bet, to do that, that calculus. Jared, I'm willing to lay money that in 10 months, in 10 months, we are going to have another system matters is that kerfluffle. Oh, it won't take that long. I'm, I'm yeah, no, I, I mean, look, we could like death tauntine whether or not there will be a system. Like we could just put up a, a workplace injury sign. But it's been this many days since a system matters based incident where someone like really rage quit on another human being in ways that like really just make me incredibly sad. You know, you know, it's just, it's just, uh, right. Yeah. Like, I, you know, it's I, a game. It's, it's just like, seriously. I mean, I think the only good thing to come out of these discussions is the idea that people produce new games because they feel like they should respond to the argument in praxis rather than in confrontation of a negative sort. Yeah, I think, like, I think there's room for like having we'll call them intractable d discussions insofar as they can like they sort of force this is what you're saying i think they force designers in the space to like wrestle with the question on their own time and in their own work like these are well, these are things that these are questions that we can ask each other or ask ourselves and have it be useful even if we never arrive at a well, an answer. Well, think of it this way. I mean, I think honestly, no one will say system doesn't matter. I think that's a really silly question. I don't a think that's a statement. real position. That's like a I don't think that's a real no, I actually will take that position. I will oh, okay. think system just doesn't matter. Like, <laughs> look, there's a degree to which it exists, right? Like saying something is real or not is totally, you know, like a pretty minimal statement, right? Like do the players roll d20s at the table? Yeah, great. Okay, that only narrows down the number of games that they're playing to a couple thousand. 
Yeah, I, like, I think that's that's like I think we're probably on the same page that the, there, the, the system matters like, claim is so limited that like it's useless. <laughs> yeah, but like, I also want to say like it it's it creates the framework of expectations for people to gather around a table. I mean, in that sense, yeah, I think it does well, matter. That that's the thing is right. Like I'll say, with the system doesn't matter, right? Like baggage that I have that my follow up claim will immediately be like the consent of people around a table matters, right? Mm -hmm. Like rules are a framework for producing the agreement to play a game together, right? Like if you're playing blind with strangers, I really should find another word for when you're playing without the ability to like know anything about people. Unaware? Yeah, unaware. I'm Mm -hmm. sorry. That's like an inherited trait from gambling terminology. And I'm, you know, sorry for that. Anyway, right, like, if you're just playing with complete strangers, right, like, what you really want is to have some sense of what sort of story the game tells, right, like, what is the content this is going through, whether it's genre or, like, narrative arc, and, like, you know, what mechanism are you doing, using to do it, and is this collaborative or competitive, right, like... Mm -hmm. And a bunch of those things are rules and a system. And to that extent, system matters, right? But, like, the thing is, at certain points, games are informal enough that, like, I can probably reasonably facsimile running 5e without a copy of the DMG on hand because Mm. you can actually get players to derive any rule that they actually care to use. Well, okay. I guess my, my, my stake on it is that I would say that like game systems are a useful heuristic to get to the narrative. Right? I mean yeah, that's like, that, I and I think in that in that sense it's like you have a problem. We don't have a story yet. So what's our easy like rule of thumb conversation thing? So rather than have that renegotiation each time, you simply use, use the game. Yeah. No, that that you know, like for but me, like, that's the, that's the extent of system matters. Yeah, and to some extent, at a certain point, people that have played together long enough are not checking the book or checking the book very rarely for a few sub rules, and mostly have internalized what rules are actually used and the extent to which they're used certain ways. Okay, okay. I, well, I let me let me ask let me like, ask you guys. Oh, I, sorry. Continue. I was going to sort of change. Oh, shift the subject and continue. We should probably shift the subject because I think we're now having an intractable sort of discussion between <laughs> yeah, friends. I, I don't think um, we actually in the disagree. Of a book podcast. I don't think we disagree. I don't right? think we disagree. Like, I, think I think it's, it's a thing of like emphasis. Right? It's, a it's a labeling. Thing. It's a label. Yeah. Well, you know, but to the original point, when you get down to it, right? Um, I think the conversation does matter in the sense that when it produces a game where people try instead to like okay you know what let's let's use this framework to produce a work that's meaningful to me i think that's good Mm. but because that's the result of that argument but what i don't like is when people recycle the argument and there's no praxis involved yeah it's like have you like and this changed what exactly nothing did you try to make the world a better place in a game at the very least nothing in fact, you know what? Not even everyone wants to be called a designer. So fine. Did you at least 
change the tenor or you know the attitude of your gaming table because you had this discussion i have yet to hear of proper evidence of that and i want to but until i do i'm thinking the argument is just largely more like behavior human beings have shown over and over again since role playing's been made and it's just it's beginning to have a toxic cost i think yeah i think there's probably a moment like we can imagine an earlier a halcyon time the salad days of rpg theoretical discussion when you know these questions were genuine right like we could we could talk about system and actually not have an answer prepared and you know make claims and see if other people have competing claims and compare them against each other. And maybe yeah. there was a time when that was the case, but I think by now the conversation has gone on so long without resolving that it's mostly just a way to establish like the language that you use in that conversation serves first and maybe only mm-hmm. to establish you as part of some kind of community that's at odds with another community. And I guess this takes us back to the topic of the episode a bit. Well, let's be more positive in our framework. Have you had like communities which weren't initially part of the gaming community, but when they were included or interacted with the gaming community, you then saw something new or relevant and fresh coming from seeing these different people now interacting with games. Like that's what made D&D happen. You had a wargaming community that interacted with the sci-fi and fantasy communities and thus D&D was promulgated. Like, have we seen anything like that recently? I'm, you know, where, hey, here's the gaming community. It's now being encountered by new sorts of people and thus we have new stuff coming out as a result. I definitely see that a lot on the level of the individual, like a a person who from another community ends up in RPGs. And that's always very interesting to me. And they typically will have something very interesting to say and do within there. I think a lot about, and this is slightly self-serving, but I think a lot about the, the Libre Baskerville jam from way back when, which I hosted. Thank you very much. And a lot of those people have never made a game before. A lot of them had never played an RPG before even. I don't even know how they found it. Um, But there's something about the structure of the jam. They felt perfectly safe and comfortable typing whatever into a Google Doc and sort of posting it and seeing what happens. And so there were a lot of people with backgrounds as writers. There were a lot of people with backgrounds as there's at least one person in there who was chiefly a philosopher and not really a games person. There was, um, I remember some people, like there was several people who, like their, their main activity is they write about board games. These are friends of mine who like write about board games and they made an RPG. So that, that was really, I thought, very productive. And it, the, the whole thing was framed very much in terms of literature anyway. So it had that kind of outside of RPG space feel. But I think a lot of, not just within itself, but like a lot of really interesting ideas disseminated, maybe not from there, but it became a banner for something that was already happening, we'll say. 
and and sort of spread across RPGs. So that's that's something that I go to a lot. Well, I'm on my end. I'm just like really glad that say RPGs interacting with say Southeast Asians for me is a very important thing. Hundred percent. Like, yeah. You know, like I don't think Southeast Asians were known for a very long time as RPG players, and now you are seeing products from a region interacting with games, making their own games. So, like, we've always been around, but the in our our interaction with RPG space is far bigger now, mm. and I think it's like, you know, it's it's almost becoming a brand when you get down to it. Like, it's. <laughs> No, it's so yeah. the existence, the existence of RPG C as a like known factor in RPGs, at least known to me, has d- had a huge impact on me and how I think about and create games, like 100. percent And also the the Latin American, the RPG Latam community, mm. uh, no, very, I, very similarly. I I wonder how they say it. I really should ask. Um, yeah, like, I, don't, people, like, I don't know. Is it is it RPG L A T A M? Is it RPG Latam? Is it Latam? You know, it's it's hard to say. I I can't speak for them, but yeah, it's like. And then you see more games about decolonization. You see more games that look at, you know, like can we get out of, you know white savior complex games can we get you know i think those discussions and the resulting products a lot of designers in brazil brought some huge energy to the osr specifically fairly like in the last couple of years Mm -hmm. um like jogo like jogo specifically but also um some graphic designers whose names are all escaping me now um and and game designers broadly um out of brazil you see more and more stuff coming out of brazil especially in the OSR, osr space you know, I can't be sure about this, but I think the reason that safety tools are a thing is partially because we have players familiar in BDSM. Oh, yeah. That crossover is definitely one that seems to exist. And, you know, that's a community that also has its own system matters discourse. Like, don't worry. Every community brings in their own attractable arguments also. <laughs> I've been, I've been uh, watching... No, like, I, I also no no go ahead. God, oh, I was I, just gonna I, say I, I've been watching people, artists on YouTube a lot recently, just to put on and have them talk, and listening to them talk about their internal drama, and and like discourse is so funny because it's all it seems so piddling to me, and then I think about RPG discourse and I'm like yeah it's the same. <laughs> yeah, like I mean as a humanist. <laughs> The thing that makes me so happy is everyone's just going through this. <laughs> 100%. But also, like, God, I'm so glad for international games and just, like, you know, the development of more and more, like, interesting takes on genre. I don't know. I'm also just, like, kind of very burnt out recently and have kind of just stopped looking at, like, anything. It's almost like communities are an exhausting thing for us. <laughs> yeah. um, fun fact, uh, at least back when I still did research, one of the fun finds was one of the highest correlations for trans women for depression is participation in the community. Oh, that's like very sad, actually. Yeah, I mean, sorry, I, I wish I had a better punchline. <laughs> um, like... I could have a more, like, downer follow-up one, but, like, you know, I'm trying to be kind to myself and others. I 
I mean, okay, when we get down to it, like, the reason why I appreciate the elusive shift for what it's doing is that it's, I think, as a, as a whole, and why I'm very eager to continue reading this book with, with you and discussing this book with everyone else, is that it really reveals our previous mistakes. Mm. It really does. I'm like, I'm like, uh-oh. I, I, I don't like the idea that we're having 40-year-old versions. Sorry, we're having, we're having arguments that are basically like X version of something that happened 50 years ago. It, it's really bothering me. A lot it, of yeah. these discussions predate D&D, some of them by 100 years. Yeah, you know, like, some this like, is not new. You know, it's almost like this is a problem. It, it truly is a problem if there is no resolution or no meaningful outcome out of it. And I, yeah. and um, no one targets for meaningful outcomes these days. I think we've just gotten into, but I need to say something. And I'm kind of like, you don't need to say something. You just want to. Yeah. I really don't understand how a different interpretation of a rule could be so offensive as to start a rant. And to start flinging ad hominems. I really don't get that. And I do want to point out, because we're here, I do want to point out that, like, the book makes it very clear, I think, that what we're, the kinds of discussions we're having now are not only the same in content, but they're very much the same in form. Like, I might have assumed before I read this book that they, you know, if they were talking about system matters, then it was in a very sort of grounded, wibbly way. Like they didn't have abstract categories for it. They didn't have theoretical categories. They absolutely did. Like that's just me. That's just me falling for like the we're special now uh, trap. You know, they absolutely did. I, I had I pulled a quote somewhere. Let me see if I can find it. The controversy is talking about a controversy initially centered on symptoms rather than root causes. Early adopters accused one another of playing games that were either too lenient or too dangerous. And then, very importantly, a few trailblazing fans would soon start to position these disagreements as theoretical in nature, assembling a hasty framework for resolving conflicts about the proper approach to play. That's on page 29 of the print edition of the book. And, like, that's that's right up front. That's very much at the very beginning of D&D. They started having this conversation about system or about symptoms, and very quickly identified it as a theoretical conversation and had it in those terms from there. Um, so we're not, we're not living in an exceptional time, you know, <laughs> at least not, at least not on that front. We, our time can be exceptional in other ways. Um, so I think that's an important sort of thing to specify. Yeah, I guess right now I have a question for both of you. And again, this is so extemporaneous because we gave up the, you know, <laughs> we gave up the flow a long time ago. Which is here, you hear here. What communities do you think have not really interacted with RPGs that you wish would? Ooh, that's a really good one. Let me think about that. Right? Like, I do want to see, like, what do you think is an idea or at least a way of thinking or a group of people who you think, you know, if they made games, this would be a whole new fun thing to do. I feel like I've made this claim about a bunch of groups of people and i can't think of any right now you know i mean like my answers are all like terrible answers right <laughs> like people that are into experimental fiction yeah right like i i think that like 
people that are into certain artisanal processes, right? Like actually, like, I think there's a lot that can be done with making small amounts of things and that can be done by using that as a process to, you know, make something that like, you know, is intentionally for a smaller audience, right? Like, rather than attempting to mass produce something. Um, I, you know, like experimental film. I would love if someone did, you know, uh, play reports by making experimental films to try and, like, make the sensations of going through the game rather than, like, trying to narrativize it. Um, you know, gamblers, like, you know, if someone wants to start gambling on Crit Role, like, and we can work out some advanced stats, like, I might start watching Critical Role and just gambling <laughs> on it, because, like, sports gambling just does nothing for me anymore. Oh my god, Fiona. <laughs> Could you imagine the accusations of match-fixing, quote-unquote, that'll happen if you monetize gambling in Critical Role? <laughs> I would point out that it, it would be by definition a game of skill than not a game of chance. And I would be making the argument that it's a game of skill and that, you know, like to some extent, it's a skill to be able to count cards. Betting on die outcomes is ostensibly a skill. It's why you're not allowed to count cards in a casino is that you're using skill against a game of chance. Oh my gosh. How about this one? For me, I w I'm hoping for like more caregivers to be like in this game in this like in the game space oh god because... no don't make don't heart hurt those people god <laughs> let those people play in this fucking community no i think like i think like someone who has the training of caregiving would be able hopefully this might be a misread on like that, that kind of person the character of that kind of person but like someone who is like able to I think we need to go beyond preventing harm. I think we need to have games that purposely uplift and support and create. So like maybe that on the one end, that kind of energy I think would be appreciated. Yeah. I mean, that's me thinking hopefully. Yeah. And, yes. you know, like I also kind of wished that I'd be very interested to see more musicians designing games. I'm very curious as to what that would be like. Yeah, there's a few of them out there, but yeah, I think I think that'd be cool to see that be more like an identity thing for musicians who play games. I feel like it's, it's the, the the musicians I know who play games tend to do them very separately. If you get me, yeah, separate mindsets and all that. But you know yeah. what I mean, like because like at the end of the day, the the ultimate argument of of this first section, this first episode, is that how we how we discourse. Oh God, I hate that word so much. It's why how... I made an amazing emoji set. You just use a CD and then a horse, oh, and my... then you know that whatever's about to come next doesn't matter. I also hate the fact that the word discourse is not being used correctly. <laughs> yeah, there's that. I mean, it's a like discursive prascus. Discourse, discourse friends, here's a free cultural studies lesson. Discourse is not a conversation. <laughs> Discourse <laughs> isn't even dialogue. Discourse is the set of yes and no statements by which you engage with the world. Discourse is a manifestation of ideology, and therefore, when two discourses meet, they're arguing yes and no over a particular topic. That's what happens when discourse happens. It's a, it's a, it's an engagement of rejection and acceptance. 
Hey, Mahar, moving past that. Ooh, I thought of a community I'd like to <laughs> I'd like to be in RPGs. What? I thought of one. What? Have y'all ever been to a craft fair? Oh my yes. god. Yes. <laughs> I love craft fair people. And here's why I think they'd be really cool and valuable in RPGs. Those are people who know the like value and validity of making what the fuck ever and charging good dollars for it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like these are people who are have spent their lives sure and correct that the things that they make are inherently valuable and they know how to sell them and they know how to do it humbly and they know how to do it on a small scale and maybe they know how to do it on a big scale too but like they I don't know there's a there's a like I talk about this a lot in terms of my goals as a professional in the game space you know what? I, I mean I don't I don't want to get huge <laughs> you know what I mean like I don't want I, I have a very I have a very humble set of goals and most of it involves like being just large enough that I can do still do everything myself and also support other people as much as possible, right? Jared, <laughs> what you're when you say that, you're basically in my mind, I'm like, wow, drive through RPG will now have a new uh, competitor in the form of Etsy. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like for real though. You there know, are zines like, on Etsy. Like there's a whole zine culture on Etsy. You know, you know yeah, that's like, like what did the but what do the crafters get out of RPGs? <laughs> That's my question. Well, they just start making different stuff. You know what I mean? Like crafters, yeah. real crafters, or at least the crafters that I've spent time around are, are not, they don't specialize, <laughs> you know, they make whatever out of whatever is around and they sell it. And I love that. And I think we need some of that energy. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Since we're influencers now to drive engagement or not, um, <laughs> Comment below what kind of community should interact with RPGs towards mutual benefit in the meeting of ideas. Yeah, let us know in the comments. Like Help us in the marketplace of ideas. <laughs> Remember smash to that, like, smash subscribe, that subscribe and, <laughs> and obey. <laughs> we do have but a Twitter you, account now. We should mention that. We have a Twitter oh, account yeah, now. Yeah, we are going to have a Twitter account now. But you see, this is how badly organized we are that we don't have it. Now, the reason why we have a Twitter account is actually quite funny. <laughs> because all of us are now <laughs> we have gotten so tired of discourse that we don't want to engage with other people on it um we've all excluded ourselves from that particular arm of community on but anyway um uh basically twitter.com slash kind trying and I'll put I'll put the link in the show notes. Yeah, the yes. incredibly easy to find thing of start looking for kind on Twitter. <laughs> it's at kind trying, but yeah, I mean, like seriously though, when you get down to it, it's uh, it's a I'm bit on Twitter of a... looking for kindness. Where can I find it? <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> what if we accidentally find people looking for like support? I don't find I, you know. Oh, but could you imagine like? I mean, let's 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 be honest about ourselves. Let's practice some self awareness and some self crit here. Could you imagine anyone like going, Mahar? Can you be kind to me? I be I, I was gonna be like, oh my god, sweetie, what what you've come to me? Come to come to Jared, Fiona, Mahar for kindness. I mean, I mean, 
No, that person could totally come to me for kindness. And yeah. like, you know, whether or That's not I the think thing. they're a good person would reflect uh, exactly how kind I am. And, you know, the way to assure that I will be kind is like all, you know, witches is just give me a bribe. Like you can just give me like, you know. What was that MTV know, show before where the, the quote was, sometimes you need to be cruel to be kind. I have a feeling. That's what that, is like a, that is a dance hit. Yeah, that's a Nick Lowe song. It's a really good song. Oh, gosh. This is so awful. But, um, oh my goodness, I just checked the time. Friendos, we've been speaking for an hour 15. Yeah. yeah. This, is a good, this is a good time to call it. It'll probably be closer to an hour after I edit it down. Okay. Community episode so. one. Um, Not the, the TV cruelty. show. <laughs> Followed by episode two, where we get further along in talking about what a community is. No, but again, like, I think this is useful because... No, this is super useful. It's useful. Just, we are, we are very <laughs> long-winded. We're, we're just pretentious. Well, no, 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 no. Wait, Mahar, speak for yourself. I'm just pretentious. <laughs> I'm not pretentious. I just use pretentious language. Oh, what does that make you... But you chose to use pretentious language. <laughs> Like I just, I just use my agency to use things people identify as pretentious, but I'm not pretentious. Yeah, I'm not like in my heart of hearts pretentious. I just do everything that makes a person pretentious. You know, Jared, 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 you Jared, Jared, you have just made language into a system doesn't matter. <laughs> How could no, you? No, form and content can be different things. <laughs> oh my god. Um, this is such. We are such people, I swear. <laughs> but anyway, on that note, no, I'm not pretentious though. I identify as a bimbo in public, and I admit that I'm a stupid person. If I ever become an influencer, the only way will be trying to eat people's books. That's oh my it. god! You know what? You have just raised the standard for bimbos everywhere. Now, in order to be a bimbo, you need to have a PhD. Thanks a bunch, Fiona. You know, I think that the university that gave me that might want it back. (laughs) (laughs) Look at this bunch of academically minded people here. No, don't worry. I'm an idiot. (laughs) Like, I'm dumb. Dumb as hell. Oh my god. No. (laughs) No. No, no. I am outsmarted by a cat on a daily basis, right? Like, my cat outsmarts me. Oh my god. Okay, on that note, everyone. (laughs) On that note, this is trying to be kind. My cat has my PhD. I'm trying to be kind to my cat. (laughs) This is me. Jared, you have so much to edit. okay okay that's a wrap trying to be kind and next time we are going to be talking about more things about this really good book the elusive shift by john peterson as published by mit press in 2020 love it go read it yeah yeah go read it